0: Good morning, family. Today our reading, the heading for the reading today is the Passover with the disciples. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will follow you, or meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared to pass over. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table in eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word given to us all praise, honor and glory be to God.
1: Well, this may be the longest single portion from scripture that we've ever taught from in one time um so we're we're probably just going to teach from twelve to twenty one and then from twenty two to twenty five is is today we'll take communion so we'll read twenty two to to twenty five as we as we do communion um, just this morning in in sunday school uh Jim was giving an illustration, and I, I forget the exact topic, but the scenario was someone was being asked a question, and the one being asked the question answered but guessed. The answer happened to be right, but the person was wrong because they guessed. I liked that. Um, maybe you've heard the phrase before, slow obedience is no obedience. Um, Salvation has been, and, and the picture of what it means to be a Christian, um, depending who you are and what circles you're in, it, it, it's been erroneously portrayed, it's been watered down, it's been accurately portrayed. But salvation is lordship. When we become saved, when the God of our salvation, when Jesus gave His blood for our salvation, we immediately become under His Lordship. Jesus is Savior and Lord. He's not Savior and then we hang out and fist bump. He's not Savior and then I do whatever I want. He's Savior and now He's my Lord. Slow obedience Is no obedience. And I think in the passage today, there's so much that's interesting. You could sit down with a with a seminary professor and talk about the days of Nisan and the Passover Lamb. And which day did this occur on? And I think you'll actually miss the most impactful, most interesting, most important part in this passage, and that's the kind of obedience that Jesus' true followers demonstrate. Unquestioning obedience. If you listen to what Jeff was, was reading, it's insane. What Jesus is saying is very strange. But we're so familiar with the word. Several examples just this morning of how tradition, what we traditionally believe to be true just floats by us and we accept it. And it's wrong. (laughs) So many times, the answer to the question that you're going to give is just rote. It's just from memory. You're just saying it because someone told you it was true. Scripture itself says, test all things to see if they're so. Paul celebrated the Bereans, held them up as an example, the people of Berea, because they took what he said and they compared it to the Word. The Word is the authority. It's the living, breathing two-edged sword that cuts to the division between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. I think sometimes we come to a text and we think we're smart because we know phrases like textual criticism. And so we come critically to the text thinking, well, maybe it doesn't mean what it says, or maybe it was a little off, or maybe the human authorship got this a little strange. I remember talking to someone one time saying, well, I disagree with Paul there. I was scandalized. What do you mean you disagree with Paul? (laughs) Okay, I disagree with gravity, but look at where we are when I fall off the roof. Such a low regard for the word because we've become so smart. Today we'll see a kind of obedience in Jesus' disciples that pour forward from a place of experience and a certain sealed faith. Obedience that pours forward from a place of experience and a certain sealed faith. Faith doesn't question. Mark fourteen twelve. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Like I said, sometimes I forget that people bring with them little controversies in the scriptures. Uh, little problems with the Scripture. Someone has told them there's a problem, and so they bring it with them. Um, before I was a believer, if you would have asked me, well, what do you think about the Bible, I would have said, well, it was, it was passed down through oral tradition, uh, you know, basically like a big game of telephone, whispered from ear to ear to ear, and so it's full of errors. I wish somebody would have asked me where, but like, which one in particular bothers you? I couldn't have answered you. I'd never read it. I didn't know what I was talking about. I was just saying what other people said. I was saying what I thought might be neat or true. I was exposing the fact that my heart was deceitfully wicked above all things, and I couldn't even understand it. I was exposing the fact that I had a perspective on the world. I had a way of understanding in my own mind. And the problem with the way that I understood the world is that it led to death. And my mind needed to be renewed and transformed. If you sit here before me as somebody who's not a believer, I am bothering you right now. I know because I've been you. It's hard to hear that you're not right. You're incapable of discerning right from wrong. Incapable. You can't do it. Unless your mind is transformed, you can't even understand your own heart. You can describe away anything, you can give yourself permission to do anything at all. And I know that about you because I share that same inward sin. Difference is, by the grace of God, I've been able to see my sin against the perfect character of God turn to Christ as my Savior, and I stay facing Him as my Lord. That's repentance, the 180-degree turn. Some people repent with a 360. If you understand geometry, you may get the problem with a 360-degree repentance. It puts you going in the exact same direction. You're supposed to go the other way. Christ, not me. In uh, 2006, a guy named Tim Chalice, I don't know if you know his name, he's a book reviewer, pretty neat dude, wrote a blog on counterfeit detection. Cool story, John, where are you going? Here's why. This example has been used time and time again because Pastor John MacArthur uses an example and then people use it time and time again. <laughs> so Tim Chalice said, Is that really true though? And here's, here's, here's the example counterfeit money. The story goes that bank tellers are trained to detect a counterfeit, not by being trained on all the different counterfeits but by really understanding the real one. Taking that dollar bill in your hand and feeling it. Seeing, well, what are the features in there? And they get weirder and weirder, right? Used to just be that there was like a spider web hidden up in the corner. Now, I don't even know if the thing has like lights that bleep or what, has a strip inside there. You can see it when you hold it up to the sun. Um, Scriptures are like that. There's any number of evil twists on the word. You don't need to know all of those. You need to know the right one. And then when somebody knocks on your door, did you know that you can pray for the dead? I don't need to know where you're going. I know that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't need to know your specific twist. right? I I don't need to know all of the details of where you're headed. Now, specific apologetics are interesting, right? I enjoy specific apologetics. I like reading about specific apologetics because sometimes it it causes me to to grapple with things, right? Sometimes it causes me to really think about, well, what do I believe about that, right? Why do I believe that that's not so? But being really familiar with the true one lets me have this conversation. You know, the scriptures reveal... That if somebody comes to you with another Christ or another gospel, they should be like anathema to me. And I hear you with a different gospel. I hear us having different gospels. Let's have a conversation because we've got a problem. If we both read the Bible, we both read that statement, and we have a different gospel, we should together want to resolve that tension. I'm terrified for you. Because I think you have another gospel. You should be terrified for me because you think I have another gospel. Let's find the middle. And we can only do that through the word. That's why I'll never accept this. Hi, I'm Elder Tim. Tim has just parked his bicycle at the end of my driveway and it looks to be nine. Okay, Elder Tim. Here's what the Bible says. And Elder Tim rattles this off of his mind. You know what? Tim, I'm going to stop you right there why don't we open up a Bible and read it? Because oftentimes, Elder Tim may have that a little bit different. And Elder Tim wants to go from this to this to this to this. No rush, Elder. Let's hang out right here. Let's go to the Word. Let's read what it says. It is so important that we're familiar with the real thing. And the funny thing that happens with that in uh. A couple of people asked me about this actually last week, during this week. I said, said, uh, John, you're a reform guy, but you talked about Judas last week, and it really sounded like you said he had an opportunity for repentance. Oh, he did. He just couldn't because he's a natural man. The natural man doesn't choose for God. And so it's so funny because I rarely come to the word with it saddled up to any hobby horse, right? I'm just open to what it says. I would rather just read it. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, scripture is an accommodation, right? And forgive me if you've already heard me say this, but it's like if you had a toddler and the toddler said, they already. first of all, toddlers already know that they don't like the food you're trying to feed them, right? They already know it's spicy or it's not a chicken nugget, so they don't like it. Um, so if you try to feed this, this little baby a, a, a graham cracker, it will say, I don't like graham crackers, even though it's never had it. So you try to describe to this, this little package of violence what a graham cracker tastes like. But they don't have a big database of knowledge. Right? So you explain it to them. Well, it's crunchy. You know how you eat those little crackers and they're crunchy. It's crunchy like that. And it's kind of sweet like, like apple juice. You know, I think you'll like it. Give it a try. And so this little anger unit tries it and decides it likes this kind of food. Right? It didn't have a lot of database of information to process all of this. We're no different. How does the God of the universe describe himself to us? He accommodates us. And so when I come to the word, I'm being accommodated to, I'm being placated by the God of the universe who humbly and graciously decided to reveal himself to me. Because it can be plainly seen in the creation that there's a God. You're a a cold fool if you walk outside and you look at the world around you and you think, you know, I think that Saban guy is onto something. I'm not talking about Nick Saban, all right, for the football fans. I think two very large rocks that existed just because they existed. Let's just start with pre existing rocks. We're moving around in space because space exists, and they came towards each other because there's such thing as location in space, and they happen to bang into each other. This banging into each other caused an explosion, because, you know, there's fuel, and there's spark, and there's all these things, and there's laws that would cause an explosion to happen. And during this explosion, one of those, all of these things flew off, and that's basically like the solar system, okay? So some are stars, some are moons, there's supernovas, there's galaxies, the galaxies that look like they've been spread out like a cloak across space. There's... Stars and they shoot across the sky, and there's matter and antimatter. And not only that, but one of these planets, one of them, I know somebody believes in aliens, one of these planets is full of people. And those people are able to reproduce. Oh, you get how that works. That's real specific, guys, but that just happened to happen, okay? Not only did that happen, but it happened in perfect timing. I was just talking this morning, I was trying to explain cryptocurrency to someone, and I used the phrase ecosystem, right? I said, oh, well, this one has a whole ecosystem. I said, What's an ecosystem? You know, that's actually a really important question to think about, because it's like creation. Earth, the planet, all, everything that we have is this ecosystem. We need all of the ecosystem to survive. So how does that evolve? in the perfect rate, along with people. The people need to be here to breathe out carbon dioxide so the plants can take it, turn it back into oxygen so the people can take it back in. But the people need something to eat. Because you know what happens if you don't have something to eat. You get hangry. Adam and Eve would have taken each other out. Forget about brother, brother and brother coming along. Right? So they need plants to eat off of. Now, they didn't eat any meat yet because there was no death. Without There's no death. So they needed plants to eat, right? They were your first vegans. They probably talked about it all the time to anybody who would listen. But there was nobody except for each other. So they were like, I'm a vegan. Me too. It's so much better for you. And then they did some CrossFit, right? <laughs> you should be able to look at the order around and know that there's a God. And he's so gracious to tell us. Let me tell you specifically who I am. And let me show you that you have an expiration date. You will die, and that's my grace. Can you imagine what a perpetual people would be like? I mean, we're only here for like a short period of time, and we're pretty awful generally during that period of time. Um, I was talking to someone really recently about the recycling industry. Sounds great, right? It's green, we're recycling, You know, we're taking batteries that could be thrown in the ocean and we're turning them into new things. You know, recycling actually works. We, America, poison the rest of the world with our junk. We send our batteries over to Ghana, African countries that we don't care about because they're poor people and we don't care about them. And so we load all of our junk up into a container ship and we send it over there and we force little children with their nimble fingers, great workers, those kids, we force them to pull things apart and use poisonous chemicals and poison the air. Towns that you go to where they do battery recycle, which we would never do here because of the toxic nature of the chemicals. The towns that you go into where everyone has cancer because the water's poisoned because that's where we send our dirty work. And that's just with us living, you know, six generations. Imagine if we lived perpetually, how bad this place would be. Imagine if Pol Pot was still around. Hitler amassing power. So God gives us an expiration date. It's his grace. Plus, I don't want to live separated from him by sin and a creation that's broken and groans under the strain of sin. I want to be with him forever in his presence, in his kingdom. And that's what the disciples were missing. They knew there was a kingdom. They just didn't know it was a kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. They thought it was a here kingdom. So I was actually talking to Jason about that this morning. Judas was setting himself up for the here kingdom. Jesus is going to deliver us this this power. We'll be rightly restored. I'll have some money because I've been pocketing it on the side. When we study the scriptures, we see who we are. Judas did what the natural man does, which is resist God. And if, if you want to push against me on that, I would say your problem is not with me. Your problem is with Scripture. John 3.19, Proverbs 14.12, Jeremiah 17.9, Romans 1.18.32, 1, Ephesians 2.1, all talks about the natural man's reaction to God. When you're swinging a hammer and you hit your finger, your first reaction is not to curse Mahatma Gandhi. Something in your heart is mad at Jesus. What is it? Will, you're killing me. If anyone would choose for God, it would be this disciple. Judas has been with him for three years. He's been exposed to the master for three years. Everywhere Jesus was, Judas was. We just heard Jeff read. He was dipping his bread in the same sop with Jesus. Elbow room. They sent Jesus sent them into the town to get a table for 24. Hey, Jesus, party of 24? Yes, but there's only 12 of us. Why? Because we're going to sit on one side of the table. That's what Judaism teaches, right? They just sit on one side of the table. So Jesus, party of 24. Judas is somewhere nearby. Any painting you see from the Renaissance period demonstrates that Judas's big problem was he didn't respect social distance because he's always like, like this up on Jesus. But he didn't. Judas had to hurdle so many opportunities for his own repentance so many times. How many times did Jesus clearly and accurately present the gospel? Maybe you shared the gospel with people and you're like, why are they not seeing the truth of it? Hey, listen. Judas never saw the truth of the gospel that Jesus was presenting. Are you better than Jesus? See, some of us sometimes put so much pressure on ourselves. I need to present the gospel well. I mean, you should want to give a clear picture of the gospel, but ultimately it's God who wills. It's God who works through you. Just present the gospel a lot. (laughs) Um, I don't know where I heard this, but fictitious example. There's a class throwing pots, okay? Throwing pots. Stick with me here. Think like an artisan, not not a meanie. I'm not talking about throwing them against the wall. I'm talking you have a wheel, you know. You ever see the movie Ghost? You know how it works. You have this pot and it's called throwing and it spins on a wheel and you pull it up and it looks easy until you try it and it flings clay everywhere and you realize like you're an idiot, right? Because it's really hard to do this. Teacher comes to the class and says, hey, listen, you're going to be graded in two different ways. I'm going to divide the room in half. This side of the room is going to be graded on one perfect pot. Throw one perfect pot. This side of the room is going to be graded on the poundage of pots you throw. Now, these these folks get to work. I'm going to tell you what. These people over here that are graded on the perfection of their pot are stressed out. They're thinking about theory. They're reading. They're slow to start. They probably don't even want to start. They certainly don't want to be the first one because they don't want to be wrong because they're going to be graded on one single pot. Semester's almost over. Teacher comes in and says, I'm a liar. Here's how you're actually going to be graded. Everybody's going to be graded on the quality of one pot. Now to the poundage group, you've got some work to do because you've got to go find the one that you want to be graded. To the perfection group, go get it. Who do you want to be? I'll take the activity. I'll take the volume. Like what does the old football coach say? Keep your legs moving, right? Push the pile forward. Drive the ball, drive the ball. As Christians, sometimes we can be a little cautious. Maybe we're concerned about other believers. I hope that's not our environment. Maybe we're concerned about other believers. Will I say something wrong? Will I do this wrong? I think sometimes we just need to open our mouths and share. It's like Paul Washer. I love this story, man. I, I, I've got to find the sermon. It's, uh, it's, it's probably a little older, but um, he was talking about evangelism and discipleship and all these things. And he said he was at the mall and he's just been praying and God would just give him somebody to share the gospel with. He's at the mall and he was walking around. He said he went outside and there was literally a guy yelling, will somebody just tell me the gospel? <laughs> I love that story. It's really not that hard to find someone to share the gospel with. Um, it, it's amazing. I think I think we believe there's more friction than there is with this conversation, guys. Like, if you believe it, if you believe that God created the earth in six days, the seventh day he rested, because he was tired? No, because he did. He gave us a pattern for living. If you believe that, like, if you, seriously, if you just take your Bible, I like to do this sometimes. Um, if you take your Bible and you flip to uh, Genesis 1, And and you read how it opens. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, close your Bible. Do you believe that? If in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth from nothing, what are you so afraid of? There's lots of ways to start this conversation. Um, I, I wonder sometimes, like, does everybody that I interact with know that I'm a believer? I think that's a really great starting point. And there's lots of ways to actualize that. People can know I'm a believer because I say it. People can know I'm a believer because I talk about my church, I talk about my church family, I talk about my church friends, I talk about the things that I do with my church. Maybe I, maybe I even actually mention with my mouth on occasion the sovereign creator of the universe who sent his son into the world to live Perfectly to be the captain of my salvation and whose blood I accepted and who is now my Lord, and then the Holy Spirit who lives in me and reminds me of sin and righteousness in judgment and 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 keeps me humble, causes me to repent. Maybe I mentioned that. But maybe we're more interested in being a little academic with the scripture because that lets us eh, makes us look pretty smart in front of people, right? We can say smart things. We can show a depth of knowledge. What good is it all if we don't share it? I'm all about it. Study. Study the word. Maybe study it so you can show yourself approved. Does it work? I don't know. But people just, it just frustrates me when otherwise believers come to the text and like, well, actually, uh, did the Passover actually happen on Thursday or Friday or was it Wednesday? I'm just like, sometimes I just get so tired of that stuff. Like, don't even talk to me unless you're living the Christian life in some other way at all. I don't even want to hear it. Because sometimes we come to the scriptures, and the reason that we find problems is because we read it like a stupid person. We don't give it any room for the way that people read things, right? We say, oh, well, it says three days, so that's 72 hours. No, No, it's not. No, it's not. If I worked for the last three days, how long did I work? Seventy hours? No. That's not how people speak. And you can see scriptural examples like this all over the place. Book of Esther is one. Esther 4.16. Go and gather all the Jews to be found. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king that is against the law And if I perish, I perish. I think Rocky tried to paraphrase that, by the way. If he dies, he dies. So for three days, this was going to occur. But if you look forward at Esther 5.1, you see on the third day she went to the king. Scripture works like this all the time. Language works like this. I'm going to do something for three days. It's not every waking moment of those three days. It's using language the way that people actually use language. Remember, God accommodates us. He comes to us, tells his story through other people, shows his his power and his sovereignty through these examples, through these scenarios, sometimes even crafts impossible situations, and then shows a way through it. And one thing that we're going to see today, too, in this passage, is you're going to see Jesus using scriptures in ways that should blow your mind. It should blow your mind. You ever read in Ezekiel, it talks about the fall of Satan? Satan talking about the king of Tyre and all these things. And you're like, wait a minute. You're like, whoa, hold on. He's no longer talking about this situation. He's talking about what happened, how Satan fell, how he was this beautiful guardian angel, this worship leader, this most beautiful thing in all of heaven. And what did he do with that? He started to become proud of it. He looked at himself. He looked at his ability to sing or play worship music or do whatever he did. And he started to become proud of that in himself started to take God's glory and bring it to Himself, and so God cast Him down like a profane thing. And so we'll see Jesus giving some insight today in this passage that you can read right over if you're not careful with the Word. If you come in here saying, well, I want to see what day Jesus celebrated the Passover on. Like, I want to see something a lot cooler. (laughs) There's no error here in preciseness in the scripture, no confusion in days. There's room for common ways of speaking about days, seasonality, just the way people would have spoken. Like if I come to you and I see you and it's at some point during the week and I say, it's hump day. What day is it? Wednesday. There's nothing in the language. It's Geico. (laughs) Right? It's a goofy little commercial that I wish never would have gotten popular because I don't like that. I don't even think that's funny, but you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying because this is the way that people speak. And so in the biblical mind, when they came to this, they wouldn't have said, Oh, look, Jesus celebrated the Passover on the wrong day. They knew exactly what was happening. We can't take this word and do violence to it by by layering some kind of precision on it that nothing else in our lives would have that kind of a precision. You'll walk away with problems because you manufactured a problem. Verse 13, And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Um, is that strange to you? <laughs> I don't know about you, but that, that kind of catches my attention. First of all, I love decisive certain language. Um, I love that the angel comes to Mary and says to her, You will have a son. His name will be Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. It's Matthew 1.21. It's my favorite passage in the whole Bible. There's no question in there. There's no, hey, um, I'm thinking of the name of the baby Jesus. And Mary said, yeah, I was thinking Matthias. <laughs> like me, when it comes to naming our children, I had to wait until my wife was under anesthesia and change their name at the last know How long it takes to get over that, guys? Don't do it. Don't do it, Mike. All right, It was one of my missteps. We still have a baby blanket that has my son's Original name before I changed it at the ninth hour. You <laughs> will have a son. His name will be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That should give you rest. That should give you so much rest. There's no question in this plan. Everything is planned out. He will save his people. He has a people. They will be saved. There's no question. No equivocating. No maybes, no buts, no loose language that we use when we're unsure. See that again here. This is There's power in this. He sent two disciples and said to them, go into the city. Now, the city's busy this time of year, right? Everybody needs to be in the city to celebrate this festival. They're going to go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water, all right, now they're not going to meet, they're not going to go find him. When they go in the city, a man carrying a jar of water is going to find you. How can you be so sure, Jesus? And like, is there some other way than carrying a jar of water that I can know him? Like, got a name? Or like some kind of cool like code word exchange we can do? Like, he comes over to me and I say, the night hawk flies at moon noon. And he says, yes, it does, my friend. And so I know it's him for sure. I would have been a terrible... Terrible disciple, maybe, because I would have had like I would have had so many questions because I've had so many years of training from my grandfather, who's vague, and then is also angry that you don't understand him. Okay, I, I still to this day would probably have nightmares about where yonder is. Uh, I think I, maybe I've shared with you before. There was a quarter mile road from my grandfather's house to his workshop, and he would generally point towards it and say, "Go over yonder and get me that thing." I'm like. Oh, this again? And you go and you do your best and you come back and it's not the right thing. You couldn't have possibly gotten the right thing. (laughs) And then, you know, it's just on from there. It's like trying to hold a flashlight for your dad. It can never be in the right place. My kids and I joke about that all the time. But Jesus tells them, go in the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. I love the certainty here. These kinds of passages should build you up. They should arm you with a su- kind of a certainty. You can benefit from seeing what happened with the disciples when you know what the word is, when you know that it's real, when it's settled in your mind, that this this is the word of God. This is the living, breathing, two-edged sword. If you're not settled there, work on that first before you argue with the scriptures. You, you're, you're playing a fighting game. Why argue with the scriptures? Why don't you settle what they are? And then you'll know whether you should argue it or not. Because then your approach changes. When you know what the word is, when you know it's of God, then you can say, I need to understand that better because it doesn't seem to make sense, so I'm, I'm not getting something here. You can approach the scriptures a lot differently when you've settled in your mind what it is. A city swarming with people needing to take in this important festival, important event, important ceremony, important religious experience, and a man with a jar will find them. We're getting closer to the obedience that pours forward from a place of experience and certain sealed faith, but they're not there yet. Verse 14. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is... My guest room, where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Again, do not miss this. This is strange. The things that Jesus is foreknowing and foretelling and foreordaining here are very specific. This is not astrology, this is not tarot cards. You're not saying, well, you were born when the sun and the moon were here. And so you're the kind of person that gets frustrated. And you're like, oh, I do. <laughs> he said, you're going to go in this town of swarming with activity. One person with a jar, with like a Turkey Hill tea bottle is going to find you. Right. And then when they find you, he's going to say, hey, uh, he's gonna, you're going to follow him. And then when he comes up to a house, you're going to go to that house And then you're going to say, the teacher says, where's my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you an upper room. And the upper room is already furnished. Jesus, party of 24. There. There is where we will have the Passover. Now also, remember the background of what's happening here? What Jesus is doing? Who's still in the mix? There's all of them. Jesus takes two of them. And he says, not, hey, go to 1422 Locust Street. That's where we're going to have the Passover. Because what's Judas going to do? Judas already sold Jesus out. He's going to get the soldiers, show them where Jesus is, and they're going to take Jesus and they're going to kill him. Jesus will be killed, but on his own time. It's going to happen on his time when he says. Because the devil is God's devil. Go this far and no further. Read it in the book of Job. What Jesus is doing is important. Because the traitor has already agreed to sell out their location. And so Jesus protects his ability to fulfill every last drop of the law. Judas will sell him out, but it's also because Jesus allowed him to. Go go and do what you're going to do, quickly. Nobody really knew what that exchange meant. Jesus never called Judas out. Jesus never told everybody, hey, it's that one. Or when he left, Jesus never said, hey, you know what Judas is going to do? Because guess who would have had a big problem and handled Judas. Remember the Huh? <laughs> My guy would not have put up with this. He would have taken care of that situation for Jesus. But remember, Jesus needed no help. Right? Here comes the obedience. Verse 16 and this this floors me. I want to be this. And the disciples set out and went to the city. <laughs> Some vague instructions. Okay, you two, you're gonna go into the city. The guy with the jar is gonna find you, follow him. He's gonna take you to a house. Say the teacher wants to use this house for the Passover. He's gonna take you upstairs to a room that's already ready for us. Half a table is set. And that's where we're gonna take the Passover. And so the disciples said, sure they know jesus he he is lord there's no question there's no i'm sorry jesus tell me (laughs) tell me one more time again i'm going to go to the city which which gate do i go to you have like a general kind of area of where i should walk in should i go in and take a few steps and stop you know how do i get into the right place so that the guy with the jar finds me and how what if there's two guys with the jar and they come up which, and they go different ways. Who do I follow? These would be my questions, right? I'm terrible to give instructions to. Um, one of my favorite ways to hunt deer is, is with deer drives, and I'm probably the worst person to be in your deer drive because the instructions are always vague. Hey, we're going to go up about, I don't know, 200 yards in between us, and we're going to all line up this way, and we're going to walk sideways across the mountain. Like, well, okay, so what about if it starts to get really wide and we get to like 200 yards or 300 yards where I can't see this person? Um, too many questions. That's not what we see in these disciples. We see an obedience that pours out from a place of experience and from a certain sealed faith. They know Jesus is going to deliver. They're not even concerned at this point. Listen, you've walked with Jesus for this long. What all have you seen Jesus do? Cross a body of water because a man was infected with devils? When when you guys come up and they see Jesus... They're so afraid of Jesus, they beg to be put into the pigs and then be thrown into the ocean and killed. They're terrified. They immediately know who Jesus is. You have seen Jesus feed people with a, with a little boy's lunch this, like, transformer lunchbox. It's got, like, a little tuna cup and some crackers inside. He feeds thousands and thousands of people. And just to make the point, has leftovers that people have to go around and collect because everybody's so full. And what do they do? They wake up in the morning, ready to worship, ready to follow Jesus anywhere. No, they want more food. And what does he say? You're just going to get hungry again. You're missing it. Verse 16, the disciples set out and went to the city. And this is for those of you who aren't quite there yet with their level of faith. And they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. I feel like that is such like a, like a letdown in the story, right? Jesus said all of this crazy stuff, and they're like, gotcha. And they go, and like, you know, Mark's like, and it was like Jesus said. And all of these people, the guy with the jar, they followed him. They went to the house. The guy at the house answered the door. Oh, the teacher needs a room? Awesome. I already set it up. It's all upstairs. Everything's ready to go. You guys just get up there and do what you need to do. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the gut wrench that that must have been. Imagine in this moment being one of the twelve. When you look at John, we're going to go all over John. Yeah. There's no way we're going to get through this. It's Nicholas's fault for trying to make me do this many verses at one time. Okay. Um. John thirteen twenty one, because again, sometimes. We become so familiar with scriptures. We become so familiar with tradition. We become so familiar with stories. We miss who Jesus is. And I want you to see this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I think we get a little comfortable with Judas being the betrayer, because we know what's coming. We've seen it on the flanogram, right? We've seen, we've seen Judas come across the flanogram and he looks evil, and he's wearing like a black thing, right? Maybe like a long cloak with like a red, like something. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This wasn't easy for Jesus. Remember the scriptures say that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. He doesn't rejoice in our wickedness, in our resistance, in our hard-heartedness. It's not God's character. We have to be really careful what we do. We try to pack our theological bags so tightly that we gloss over things. Jesus was troubled in the spirit about Judas. What about us? Jesus knew the outcome and was troubled in His spirit. We don't know anything. Are we passingly interested in the people that we see day in and day out? 2 Peter 3, nine, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We said, we said last week in John six thirty seven and 39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Later in John 13, 18, we read, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, if you were to just jot a quick note, Psalm 41, 9, this is the way that Jesus uses the scriptures. The psalmist was talking and pouring out about something and that where Jesus said, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me is lifted directly from the pages of Psalm 41, nine. Jesus is the living Word. He gives insight into the Scriptures. So I say when we come to these things, we shouldn't have this theological bag packed so tight that we're coming in with issues and defenses. Read the Word. Verse 21, from Mark 14. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would be greater for that man if he had not been born. Jesus, Jesus uses this example of Judas quite heavily. We're supposed to look at this. We're supposed to think about this. Why? Because it causes us to check our temperature. Like all of those disciples, is it I? Is it I? What is it in your life that, for Judas, it was money? Right? We read that Judas was dipping his hand in the money bag. Judas wanted to sell the perfume because they could get some money and give it to the poor. And Judas would skim a little bit off the top. For Judas, it was money. For us, maybe it's something else. Something else is an idol in our lives. Something is an idol in everyone's life. We have to work to kill it. The human heart, idol factory. Your heart makes idols out of anything. Your heart can make an idol of your children, your heart can make an idol of your spouse, and it's not good for you, and it's not good for them. They can't sustain the weight of your faith. Only God can. Only God can sustain the weight of our faith. In John 6:64, 6, we read, "But some of you, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning, those who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning. And he continues in verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 64, which starts to talk about Judas, flows into the explanation of why in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then comes verse 66. After hearing this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is to make us check ourselves, check our heart, inspect our own fruit. Salt water doesn't flow from fresh? What's coming out of you? What is the fruit in your life? Who are you accountable to? Right? Who are you talking with? Who are you willing to share with? You need people in your life that you can be very real with. You need somebody that you can, you can share your struggles with because here's, here's why I say that. If you don't, you'll pretend like you don't have any. And that can cause you to harden. That can cause you to keep a very long account with sin. That can cause you not to have a Lord in Christ, but to have an idol in yourself. To start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. So we never find out in the church, right? you walk by the light switch, you flip it on, you hear a little short in there, and you just walk away. Seems like we never find out in the church when there's a little short in that switch. We find out when the building is ashes on the ground. Because we come into the building, how are you? Blessed and highly favored. Stop it. Now maybe, I mean, you are blessed and highly favored. I'm thankful for the the holes in my body. You have to come to Sunday school if you want to know why I said that. We listened, uh, leadership team listened to a, a sermon this morning. where The guy said, when is the last time that you drank a glass of water to the glory of God? When was the last time you were that thankful? Um, My mother-in-law struggles with with being sick a lot. And and she kind of blew me away one time when she said, I'm just thankful I have a house to be sick in. Guys, God is good to us. God is really, really good to us. And we forget to appreciate, acknowledge, recognize, and celebrate that. Right? Drink a water. Drink, Drink a glass of water to the glory of God. Drink your coffee. To the glory of God. Do whatever you do to the glory of God and you'll start to talk about it more. And you'll find people coming to you and saying, why are you, why are you beaming? I am glad you asked. In a minute, you might not be, but I am glad you asked. <laughs> Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 37. Teacher, what's, what is the great commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, in all your mind. Raise your hand if you're doing that. It's a great goal. What if you work towards it? What if you took a step this week and said, you know what? I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my everything. The weight of everything that's me is going to be all about loving God completely. It'll change your life. Maybe you're not going to do it. I hope you're someone who like responds to negative challenges very well. You're not going to do this this week. Let's pray. God, you are so great to us. You give us coffee, water, Diet Coke, steak, friends, family, a home, an earth full of oxygen for us to take in, lungs that breathe. And God, then you expire our bodies to your presence. You're so good to us. I pray that you remind me of that. God, and I want to just enjoy you more every single day until you bring me home. In Jesus' name, amen.